here in person or on the live stream, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We'll be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. I'll caution you as you're turning there and getting settled that we could probably have an entire series just on this parable. But we're just going to look at it one week and see what the main thrust is. This is God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us this morning what it means for us to hear this call and follow after you. We ask that you would teach us these deep truths in ways that do not merely remain in our minds or in our words, but that seep down into our hearts and lives and affect every part of who we are that we might live for your glory, for we ask it in your name. Amen. So what is a good Christian supposed to do? I mean, the Sunday school answers, you know, read your Bible and pray, go to church. Like in life, every day, here and there, when you encounter these strange circumstances, what is a good Christian supposed to do. When I was doing college ministry after one of our large group meetings late one night, I finished putting all the sound equipment away, uploading the sermon, putting all the stuff away, and I got in my truck and I headed home and the way home passed by the hospital. And this was late, like 1130 at night. And I see this old man out there with a cane, and you could just see the reflection of a hospital band on his, on his wrist, and he's thumbing a ride home at 11.30 at night in Rock Hill. 
I was the only car on the road. And as I passed by, exhausted and ready to go to bed, I thought to myself, I guess I have to go back and get him because that's what a good Christian would do. I mean, I just preached. How can I not go back and get him? And so I go back and I roll down my window and I ask, can I help you? It's like, yeah, I I really need a ride home. They just discharged me. I'm like, well, where do you live? In Chester. Just like 45 minutes away. Like, what were you thinking, man? And, And I guess I was on the hook now. So an hour and a half of my night I spent taking this guy to Chester, dropping him off at his house and and heading back home even more tired than I was before. And I would like to say I was doing this out of this sincere desire and love to help this person, out of this sincere love. But I, I can't say that the whole time I'm thinking to myself, like, what if I catch whatever he has? What if, what if this is just a ruse and he robs me? Can I take him? I can probably take him. I need to get that cane from him first. <laughs> should I ask for gas money? What, should I get him to go to church? You know, there's, we have a church there in Chester. Maybe if I can get him to go to church there, it'll all be worth it. Like, like I was not thinking pure and holy thoughts. I was just trying to do what a good Christian was supposed to do. I wasn't really sure what that even was. What does God really require of me? Was it enough that I took him home? Or will I stand judged for the thoughts of my heart and mind? Should I have given him money? Should I have gone back and checked on him the next day? Like, what? What did God really require of me so that when the last day comes and I stand before God, he welcomes me into eternal life and doesn't cast me aside? What does a good Christian do? This is the question that the lawyer had. Right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the whole question that prompts this, this exchange that gives us the gift of this parable of the Good Samaritan. And so we're going to look at it in three parts. We're going to look at this concern. What must we do to enter eternal life? We're going to look at the cost. Why is it so hard to fulfill those responsibilities? We're going to look at the call that Jesus gives us to go and do likewise. And so the first thing I want us to consider here is this concern that the lawyer has. What must we do to inherit eternal life? It's a question that's asked by many, time, by many people many times in Scripture. After Peter preached at Pentecost, people were cut to the heart. and They asked, what must we do to be saved, to have this eternal life? It's the question the Philippian jailer, jailer asked of Paul. It's the question that many of you asked that moment when you looked to the Lord in faith. What must we do to have eternal life? And Jesus being Jesus, answers a question with a question, and he points this lawyer back to the law. See, this wasn't a lawyer like we think of lawyers. This was a lawyer who was dedicated to knowing Scripture, the law of God. And so Jesus just puts it back to him. Well, you're a lawyer. What do you think? And he answers, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, you got it. Just go do that, and you'll be great. But the lawyer didn't like that answer. It's like when the kids are eating dinner, right? And you're trying something new. And then, and they don't like it. We don't want lima beans. We don't like lima beans. But then the dessert gets broken out. They're like, oh, I want dessert. I want some strawberry shortcake. I want some lemon pie. I want, well, you need to try your, your lima beans. Well, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to try my lima beans. What do I need to do to get dessert? Try your lima beans. But that's like you get into this, this causal loop where the thing that they want and the thing that they don't want to do stand in eternal opposition to one another. We just don't like the answer. Just do that. You can have it. Why? Why don't we like the answer? What? This lawyer, he gives us a clue. We probably already know the answer. But, but think about it. Just this morning, just take today. Maybe you've been awake for just a few hours. Have you loved the Lord your God? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, at every moment. And if you are fortunate enough to be able to answer that question sincerely, yes, like, are you going to be able to keep it up until you stand before him? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Maybe my spouse doesn't count, right, when I snapped at him. And so you ask the same question. Uh, who is my neighbor? Does it, does it count? Does, does, was that that big a deal? See, the lawyer is looking for loopholes. He wants to make the law easier because he senses the weight of what God requires of us to enter everlasting life. But Jesus doesn't answer his question with a question. He answers his question with a story. It's harder to get a loophole out of a story. Because there's a point and it's sharp. Maybe the lawyer saw himself in the, the image of the priest. We don't know whether the priest was going to or from the temple, but the, the priest was required to to oversee the the work of worship and sacrifices for God's people to remain faithful. He had important work to do to enable people to go to God and, and find forgiveness for their sins. For him to touch a dead body would make him unclean and unfit for service. He couldn't take the chance. This man looks, looks dead. He's, there's probably nothing I can do for him anyway, and so he passes by on the other side. We don't know what the Levite was thinking. Maybe he's coming back from the temple. Maybe he's done his service. He has to do whatever the priests tell him to do, and he's spent a whole long time being very, very obedient. He's like, not one more thing. I'm exhausted. I need to get home. And he passes by on the other side, and there is no loophole for either one of them. The parable on the face of it, they stand condemned. Because what, what the lawyer senses 
What Jesus affirms, what we need to recognize is this, that for us to be able to have eternal life, to live eternally in fellowship with our God requires us to be like him. And when you feel the weight of that, when you feel the weight of that, it becomes obvious that what we really need is a loophole. Or at least that's what we think we need. How do we try to make God's commands easier? Maybe we, we tell ourselves, well, that, that doesn't apply today. Right? We have iPhones and stuff, so you know, that's an old law. It doesn't really matter. Or we tell ourselves, God wants me to be happy, right? He wants me to be joyful. This is going to make me happy and full of joy. So clearly that's not what God was talking about. Or we look on other people and say, There's, you know, they don't deserve my help. They got themselves into this situation and they can get themselves out. Or I've already done my bit. I volunteered at the church. I helped out at the rescue mission. Let somebody else help. We look for loopholes. But Jesus doesn't give us any. No, what he does is he just impresses upon us all the more the heavy cost. Why is it so hard to be holy? See, Jesus' parable doesn't soften kingdom ethics at all. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount and you're like, there is no way I can live up to this. Let me go read Luke. You come to the the parable of the Good Samaritan, it doesn't let you off the hook. The ethics of the kingdom are just as high as they've ever been. You know, there, there are all these reports that come out from time to time about these leaders in business or in the church or in government who've faked their resumes. They've, they've fudged a few things. Wow, I lectured at Oxford when they like, gave a seminar to a small group. that it, like, It's not the same. You know, there's that congressman who's apparently his entire resume is just a lie, a complete lie, right? It's, it's easy to just sort of fake the surface and present a facade of having it all together, of meeting the qualifications. Facades are easy. You know what's hard? Real holiness of heart and the character and life. But the Samaritan He is an illustration of what it means to truly love our neighbors as ourselves. Just consider a little bit of what he did. He took an incredible risk to help this man. He is walking this road to Jericho, which was a very rocky road. Lots of places for thieves and bandits to hide. It was a well-known dangerous place. It was... 
it was not a place you wanted to linger. You wanted to get there before dark. You wanted to get where you were going. You didn't want to stop. And it was a, a tactic at that time for bands of robbers to just sort of pretend and set up a trap. Oh, look, there's this suffering man or woman. Come help. And then, ha, they jump out and they take everything that you have. And they leave and they, they don't care. This, this Samaritan, he didn't know. Was he walking into a trap? If he paused to help this man, would the robbers who just robbed him come back and get him? He took a risk, a meaningful risk, to help a man who was his enemy. Like the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. They had very little regard for one another. And there was a wall of hostility dividing them. Different traditions, different assertions, different finger-pointing, different blames. But for a Samaritan, you have to understand the, the shock that the audience of this original, original audience of this parable would have felt when Jesus says, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan, a who now? It would be analogous to a clansman stopping to help an injured Martin Luther King Jr. This is how outlandish this is. And yet this Samaritan stopped to help a man who was essentially, essentially his enemy, a man who, as far as he and his people were concerned, would, would be better off dead and out of their hair. But he stops to help. And to do so, he delayed his journey. He was heading somewhere, and we know it was important. He had a pack mule. He had things. He, he was going someplace. There was a purpose. There was a timetable. But he was willing to stop and help, to be utterly and completely inconvenienced, to assist a man in need. And he didn't know who this man was. He didn't have any guarantees that this man would be able to pay him back, that this man would be thankful, that this man would even speak to him when it was all done. But he welcomes the inconvenience and delays his journey to focus his attention on assisting this man who was in great need. And he helped him at great cost. He poured oil and wine on his wounds. Presumably, oil and wine that were going to be required at his destination or required for his trip. Things that take time and energy to produce, money to buy. And he poured these on his wounds to salve them. And it's unlikely that he was just walking around with bandages, so he probably had to tear up his own garment to wrap these man's wounds and help, help put it, Rest, the bleeding. And he gave this innkeeper, after spending a night there taking care of this man, he gave the innkeeper two denarii, two days' wages, which would have been at least a couple of weeks' worth of care. He says, I'm going to come back, and I'll take care of anything else that's needed. It, he helped this man at great expense. And not caring 
what other people would think of him. Whenever he got to his destination, maybe he was going home, maybe he was going to visit relatives, maybe it was a business venture. And when he encountered his Samaritan friends and they asked what happened, why was he late? And he says, oh, I stopped. You stopped to help who? What were you thinking? He doesn't care what others might think. The thing is, in all of this, there's no, there's no facade. There's no guile. There's no emptiness. This Samaritan was living this out because that's just who he was. It's true holiness. It, it can't be faked. It costs. What will it cost you to pursue that kind of holiness? Bishop J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, shares some thoughts on that. Says it might cost you your self-righteousness, the, the conceit of your own goodness. How often do we look for loopholes by thinking that we are better than we really are or better than others? Like, if you want holiness, you can't have self-righteousness. might cost you your, your self-indulgence. You and sin, he says, must quarrel if you and God are to be friends. It's going to cost you just getting whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, because you are walking in a new way, a way of holiness, a way that is characterized by God himself, not by your whims and wishes. It might cost you your love of ease. Ryle says, we secretly wish that we could have a vicarious Christianity. We can read the biographies of the heroes of the faith and say, oh, look at them. They were such great representatives. They're my people. Look at all that they did so that I don't have to. There is no vicarious Christianity. It is something for us to live out in our places, with the people around us, out of our own hearts, in our own lives. It might even cost you the favor of the world, where we might learn, need to learn to be content to be thought ill of by man, if we are to please God. What the Apostle John was saying in the passage we read earlier in the service, why are you surprised if the world hates you? If you follow in the way of the Lord. True holiness can't be faked. The real thing costs. Can you afford it? I was at a Panera in Rock Hill one day, many years ago. And this big, well-dressed kid walks into the Panera, comes up to the table where I was talking with somebody and says, Hey, uh, can I talk with you for a minute? Uh, do you have a place that I could stay for the night? <laughs> I thought it was a scam. Like, like that was the lead-in question for like, well, if you want to make some extra money, you know. Uh, but 
No, like it turns out this kid's mom got annoyed with him, dropped him off on the side of the interstate and drove home to Columbia an hour and a half away and said, you figure it out. And he finds his way into this Panera and says, I don't know what to do or how to get home. No cell phone, no wallet, no money, nothing, nothing. And he was left to get home. If you're honest, if I'm honest, don't we feel a little bit like that? I don't have anything. I can't afford what holiness is going to cost. So how is it even possible then for us to answer the call of Jesus to go and do likewise? Are we even capable of living in holiness? The leopard can't change its spots. Can we, who have unholy hearts, think them, will them, hope them into holiness? What are we to make of this passage? How are we supposed to live it out? Notice a couple of things here. Why? Why did the Samaritan do what he did? Was he like me driving home that night? Oh, I guess I have to do what a good Christian would do. Why did he do what he did? Verse 33, it tells us, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this wounded man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. The Samaritan had a heart that was moved to help. A heart that was steeped in holiness. A heart out of which came kindness and generosity and help. He had a holy heart. Do you? Is the outflow of your heart love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Or does out of your heart come every form of malice and anger and selfishness and wickedness and rebellion and sin? If you believe anything that the Lord says in any of the Gospels, you have to recognize that Jesus' own verdict of our hearts is that we have anything but holy hearts. We have wicked, rebellious, sinful hearts. How then does he expect us to go and do likewise? It's interesting that this whole parable is situated in Jesus' interaction with this lawyer. A lawyer who came to Jesus to test him. And upon seeing Jesus pass the test, sought to justify himself. This is a man who is coming to Jesus, hoping that Jesus conforms to his expectations. And so Jesus puts him in a story. Yeah, maybe the lawyer saw himself in the priest or the Levite, but, but likely not. 
Definitely the lawyer didn't identify particularly well with the the Samaritan. That, That would be anathema. Who then should the lawyer identify himself with? There's only one Jewish man in this story who isn't a priest or a temple worker. And it's the man who fell among robbers, who lay broken and wounded and half dead, stripped of everything with no money, no name, no ability to do anything on his own. And the Samaritan showed him mercy. In this parable, Jesus is giving us a picture into the heart of God. A God who has mercy on those who cannot help themselves, who cannot be holy, who cannot do anything that would earn them or merit them everlasting life. And yet God is a God of mercy and redemption, a God who can take hearts of stone and make them into hearts of flesh, a God who sent his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we could call with other theologians the Great Samaritan, who did not consider his place in glory something to be held onto, but gave it up, was inconvenienced in the ultimate degree to come and seek and save the lost, who gave his own life, that we might be saved, that we might be redeemed, that we might be healed. And who seals us with his Holy Spirit as a promise and guarantee that he's coming back to finish what he started, to make us well again. If the lawyer should have learned anything from this parable, if we should learn anything from it, it is this. Jesus must first do his work in us if we are ever to be equipped to do his work in the world. Jesus must first do his work in us if we are ever to be equipped to do his work in the world. And we need to receive that neighbor love from Christ if we to be able to show neighbor love to others. We need to receive forgiveness from Christ if we are to understand what it means to show forgiveness to others. We need to receive mercy from Christ if we are to understand what it means to show mercy to others. We do not have it in ourselves to keep the law. We do not have it in ourselves to justify our own souls. We are to be shaped and formed into the likeness of the God with whom we will have everlasting life, we must first have him do his work in us. One of the reasons, not one tiny, tiny reason that I stopped to help that guy is because not Too distant from that time period, I myself had been stranded as I thought I could get my truck to this meeting and then get gas. The gas gauge was broken, so it was always a guess as to when I needed to fill it up. And right at the bottom of a hill, I ran out of gas. 
It was like maybe a quarter of a mile to a gas station, but so many cars passed me. Police cars, fire trucks, worker trucks, cars with people that I think I knew driving. And nobody stopped to help me. And then I had to go to a gas station and pay for an overpriced gas can and fill it up with gas and go back and and get my car where it needed to be. You experience that once. And you realize, huh, I don't want others to experience that again. You receive the mercy and grace of Christ truly and really. You cannot, you cannot hold it in. It is not something to be grasped. It overflows because it changes us. Christ is at work, binding up the wounds of his people, bringing us back to health, that we might be ready to live with him in everlasting glory. He's doing that work in us. He's doing that work through us. So that when he calls us to walk the path of holiness after him, it is not a call to earn everlasting life but to reflect the fact that we have already received it. That we no longer live as citizens of this world, but we live as those who have received from God himself the blessings of eternity. Only then can we go and do likewise. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, help us, O Lord, to see our great need And to turn to you, that we might not be shaped by the things of this world, that we might not be shaped by our selfish desires, that we might not continue to let our selfish and sinful hearts, that old man, that old sinful nature, rule and reign in us. O Lord, help us to learn what it means that we are dead to that and alive to God in Christ. Or that we might bear the fruit of of holiness in our relationships, in our work, in our words, in our thoughts, that the overflow of our hearts might reflect the blessing, overflowing blessing of God to us in Christ. We pray that you would work this in us and through us for the glory of Christ. Amen.